Our reading from today is from 2 Samuel chapter 16. Shimei curses David. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of, the king, of king David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zerah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog my, curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take his head off. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all the servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, I pray that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, my friend and I were watching a college football game, and it appeared that our team was making a last-second comeback. We had advanced to the 20-yard line with 30 seconds to go. Something unfortunate happened on first down. Our wide receiver was called for pass interference, and we were backed up to the 35-yard line with only 20 seconds to go, and we knew that our prospects were bleak. As first down was replayed, my friend did something absolutely inexplicable. He changed the channel. I said, Don, what are you doing? We were watching this football game, turn it back. So he turned it back. And uh, second down, ball was snapped. And again, he changed the channel. I said, Don, we've invested three good hours in watching this football game. I think we're good for the last 20 seconds. Well, third down came. And as you may have guessed, changed the channel. And I said, Don, this is ridiculous. Like, what is the deal here? And he said, look, man, I know what's going to happen. And I know it's not going to be good. I just cannot bear to face this. I cannot bear to see us lose this way to this team. Well, this is kind of a light story about two friends watching a football game, and one of them is having a little difficulty facing the future. Let's tell a real story. I have a friend who's a pastor in Texas. He knows a couple that he describes as people who have lived their life to avoid difficulty. The husband and wife are sitting at the dinner table, and the husband notices that blood is accumulating on his wife's blouse. He says, honey, um, you are bleeding. Like, what is the problem? And his wife uh, tries to deflect, and she tries to dodge. She comes to realize there's no dodging this one. She admits that she has a growth on her breast, that she's been too afraid to go to the doctor for fear of a diagnosis of cancer, for fear of a prognosis that is terminal. You see, her mother died of breast cancer when she was a teenager. He asked for how long has the lump been there. She admits, seven years. They go to the doctor. She is diagnosed with cancer, and she does die within six months. Now, 
this is a shocking and extreme story. But we all know that to varying degrees, we all live to resist difficulty and with a fear of the future. Whether it's this, no matter how bad it is, we all have some level of dread that something really bad is around the corner. We all anticipate that perhaps doom is upon us. But that is not at all the perspective of David in the story today. Not at all. David has horrible circumstances. His son Absalom has taken his throne. And now his son is trying to take his life. Meanwhile, as if things couldn't get worse, an old dog from the house of, Shim- from the house of Saul named Shimei comes out to taunt David. And he has brought all of his weapons. He throws rocks and he throws dust. He calls David worthless. He calls him a man of blood. And worst of all, he lodges a very condemning false accusation. He says that David has unjustly wronged the house of Saul, when in reality Saul had repeatedly tried to murder David. And on two different occasions, when David had the chance to kill Saul, David had mercy on Saul and he spared his life. Now, as for the future, Shimei is trying to hurl curses on David. It says in the text that he continually cursed David meaning that he's trying to inflict pain and suffering on his future. Now, I don't know how you would react to this, but I would go down with a fight. I would resist Shimei to the end. And as for the future, I'd be a little bit nervous. But that is not at all David's perspective. I was arrested the first time I read this text by how David is so able to calmly accept his horrible circumstances and peacefully face the future. So the question we have to ask is, what is it that God has given David that enables him to calmly accept horrible circumstances and to boldly face the future? And the answer is this. David lives in the crosshairs of the gospel. David knows that he is a sinner who is not entitled to a comfortable life. And David also knows that his life is held in the hands of a sovereign, saving God. Now, when Shimei comes out to taunt David, His right-hand man, Abishai, is having none of it. He says, who dares taunt my lord, the king? Abishai is of the opinion that David is the king. He has earned this position. He holds this status. He deserves better than this. But David disagrees. David says, leave him alone. Let him curse. You see, David knows why he is on the run. David's kingdom has collapsed largely because of his own moral failings. Now, to put it in sanitary terms, David has had an extramarital affair, and he has tried to hide his dirty deeds. To put it more graphically, David has raped a woman. He has used his authority as the king to force a woman to come to his bed. He has slept with her. He has gotten her pregnant. And to cover it up, David has murdered her husband, Uriah. David demonstrates no pretense that he deserves a comfortable life. David knows that he is a sinner. Now, I know that in my life, When I am angry, essentially, many times, what I'm communicating to God is, I deserve better than this. Hypothetically, when my precious baby daughter is up late at night crying because she is teething, and I've been up from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock, and I am getting more and more frustrated because I feel as if the Lord is not answering my prayers, my frustration at God is basically saying, hey, God, you owe me. I'm a good dad. I've been up for two hours in the middle of the night with my daughter. I deserve better than this. Now, conversely, I have a friend who lives in Chicago who demonstrates a kind of humility like David has. She is one of the warmest, most generous people you would ever meet. Anyone who has ever encountered her would say she's one of the most loving people they have ever known. 
When she was diagnosed with cancer, multiple people came to her and said, of all people, why you? Why you? And her response to them, why not me? She, she demonstrates this humility that she's not entitled to anything better or worse than any other person. And when we all realize that Jesus lived perfectly and suffered more than any other person who has ever lived, we can kind of come to terms that we, we just should not expect a pain-free, comfortable existence. When we accept that we are sinners who live in a fallen world and that we are going to suffer, there is difficulty and we have no entitlement to anything better. It takes so much of the edge off of our fear of the future. Secondly, while David lives with the recognition of his sin, he also knows that his life is held in the hands of a sovereign, saving God. Shimei has cursed David and is thereby attempting to cast pain and suffering on his future. And David's general reaction is, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'll be cursed, maybe I'll be blessed. He's not sure. But what he's very clear on is that Shimei does not hold the keys. God holds the keys to his future. God is sovereign in his circumstances. His attitude is very similar to that of Job, who when he had suffered so much, he said, out of the hand of the Lord comes blessing, and out of the Lord comes cursing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now this is an incredible comfort to know that God is completely sovereign in our circumstances. Because it means that everything that comes our way is within God's sovereign plan, and it means that nothing is outside the reach of God's hand. But this is only good news if this God who is in complete control is also a God who is good. I mean, let's be honest. Vladimir Putin is in full control of Russia, and I think we're all a little bit nervous right now. Jeff Bazilek was the head coach of Wake Forest basketball for four years. Well, we kind of expected the worst came in and came out. It is only good news... Because David knows that his life is held in the hand of a saving God, a God who rescues, a God who redeems, a God who saves. Well, that is a lot of Christian jargon. What does that mean? Well, this is why it's important. And this is, at the bottom line, why it's significant in the story. David is not afraid to die. David has certain assurance of where he is going when he dies. Now, the text says that David is on his way to the Jordan. David knows that that is where his destination is. It says that his men arrived weary at the Jordan. And then, in what I think is the most significant verse in the whole text, it says, there David refreshed himself. Now, we cannot overlook the obvious interpretation that David is dehydrated. He's traveled over 20 miles. He's descended over 3,500 feet through the desert. David is thirsty. And he gets to the water, and he takes a drink, and he is physically nourished. But we cannot reduce the interpretation to just that he fixed his dehydration. Because there is no way that a faithful Israelite like David could go to the banks of the Jordan River and not be reminded of the covenants of God. As David kneeled down at the banks of the waters, he would be reminded of the promises that God had made to Abraham. He would remember that God had delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And most importantly, he would remember... That God had fulfilled his promises through his servant Joshua when he led his people across the Jordan River into the promised land. As David knelt to the banks of the Jordan, he would be able to see both sides of the water. And David would know that he was on the claimed side of the land. He would know that he was in the promised land. And in the same way that David knew that God was able to deliver the Israelites from Egypt and bring them into the land of milk and honey... 
David would also know that when his life ended, God was able to deliver him from this fallen world and bring him to his home in heaven. We see further evidence of this earlier in the, earlier in the book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David has lost a son in the first week of his life. And his servants are perplexed by the way that David is not mourning as dramatically as a Hebrew normally would. And they ask David, why are you not grieving like this? And this is what he says back to them. He says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David does not say, I may go to him. He does not say, I can go to him. David says, indicatively and affirmatively, I will go to him. David has a certain assurance of where he is going when he dies. Furthermore, in Psalm 16, David writes with confidence about how God will deal with him when he dies. He writes, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. All fear of the future ultimately resonates from the fear of death. Whether it is the fear of losing your job, the fear of financial collapse, the fear of bad health, the fear that you'll never get married, the fear that you'll never have children, the fear that your children are going to destroy their lives, all fear resonates from the question of what is going to happen to me when I die. And nothing will soothe, comfort, and ease your fears in this life like knowing you have absolutely no fear in death. In the same way that no Israelite can see the River Jordan and not be reminded of the covenants of God, it is very hard for a Christian to hear a story about the Jordan River and not be reminded of the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. Jesus at the Jordan stood in line with sinners. In the Jordan, he was baptized like a sinner, and on the cross, he, and from the Jordan, he launched his ministry and was nailed to the cross as a sinner, all for the sake of rescuing sinners from sin and death. Jesus lived, died, and was risen so that every single person would have the opportunity to have certain assurance, certain hope in their death, that by coming to Christ and allowing Jesus to make them perfectly righteous before God, that they would have absolutely nothing to be afraid of when they die. If you are a person who is afraid of the future, I want you to know that when you have a certain assurance of your home in heaven, you can boldly face the future. When you live your life with an active perception of the incredible joy and the inconceivable happiness that awaits you when you go to glory, then the trials and tribulations of your future that seem like mountains to you they really become like speed bumps in the YMCA parking lot. And when you are a forgiven sinner, know that your future is heaven. That is where you are going. And understand that every step you take, every day you live, is one step closer to when you will be in perfect bliss. The prayer of our heart is that God will make the song of our soul the same as the words of the old hymn, on Jordan's stormy banks. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possession lies. All of those wide extended plains shines one eternal day where God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away 
And I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for promised land. I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for promised land. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, glorify yourself in us. Amen.